I'm not sure uh, how many of you have had an experience in your life, and, and maybe if you're a Georgia fan, you feel this after last night, but had an experience in life where you, uh, there, you've just gone through something so tumultuous, so uh, shell-shocking to who you are, that you get on the other side of it, and you're just, you just can't process what happened. You don't have an, you can't, you have no categories to put to understand what's going on in that moment, and, and not in a good way, in a nightmarish kind of way. Um, well, on December, some of you may remember that who were alive, on December 26, 2004, there was an earthquake that came off the coast of uh, Sumatra, Indonesia, and it was a 9.1 magnitude. And it forced waves 100 foot high. That was a tsunami that rocked Southeast Asia. Some of you, may, you guys may remember this. And uh, there was a movie that was put out. And I, I remember that coming in the news. It was just after we were married. And uh, it was the kind of, kind of catastrophic event that you just don't have a category for. You, you just, it's almost unbelievable, the destruction that happened. Well, there's a movie that came out in 2012 called Impossible. I don't know if any of you have seen it. It's a, it's a true story about a family that was on vacation in Thailand during this, and it's their survival story as they made it through this tsunami. And it's a, it's a terrifying movie. Like, it's very well done, and it, you feel like you get put in the situation. And I remember after watching that movie, sitting on the other side of it, and just thinking about not just the, the situation that that family went through, but just in the whole aspect of what happened in that tsunami, and I had no categories for it. I just couldn't process it. I just was, it was just kind of stunned. And uh, as we, we're, if you're just joining with us, we are wrapping up. Judges, this, the book of Judges today. And so we've been on the sermon series since September. And in many ways, the book of Judges, especially these last few chapters, you get to the end of it. And if you've been in our connect groups, it's a bit hard to process it. Like what you've experienced and what you've read. And even just here, if you kind of just sit with what we've just read in the scriptures today, it's, it's, all, it's nightmarish. Like what categories do you put this in? How do you come on the other side of it? And, uh, and Judges hasn't been all of that. I mean, there have been glimpses of God's mercy and compassion and grace throughout Judges. We've seen it in, in the reality that, that a spirit-filled leader can rise above the enemies around them and, and, and be hope for a people. We've seen it in that. We've seen it in that there are, there are some spirit-filled leaders that have, like Deborah, that inspired hope in God's people. We've seen God's compassion that as his people continue to fail and struggle and chase after cultural idols, that he still has compassion on them to rescue them. But the big picture of Judges hasn't been those things. In many ways, it's like a tsunami of overwhelming catastrophe has just come upon us as we've gone through Judges. And, it, and you get to the other side of it, and, and you, how do you process it? And I believe that's, the, that's where the narrator of Judges wants us to land. That's what he wants us to feel after these 21 chapters. And he brings us to this painful conclusion, which I hope to summarize our time this morning. But there is hope in this conclusion as well. And you'll see it on our screen uh, and on your, on your worship guide. The poisonous seed of self has left the world broken, yet a king will come who will bring rescue. Now, what the narrator, I believe, wants us to see at the end of Judges here in these final verses is that the poisonous seed of self has left this world broken, yet a king will come who will bring rescue. Let's pray. Father, this is, uh, in a strange way, this chapter is a fitting intro to the darkness and the, the light that the Advent brings. And Father, all throughout central Kentucky, 
churches are gathering to begin to help, help their congregations fix their eyes on the hope of the gospel, the hope of the coming King, Jesus. And what I want to ask that you would do is that in, in our church, in all these churches, they go to unfold your word this morning, that you would do what we have no power to do, which is to make your word come alive. Every one of us that have entered this room are in some ways infected with this poisonous seed that we see in Judges. And yet you've not left us alone. And so would you meet us where we are? God, you look upon us with compassion and delight and love. And would you meet us in your word this morning and help us to see more of who you are, more of your goodness and your graciousness and the reality that you are a king that has come to rescue us. It's in your name that we pray. Amen. So we're going to begin in verses 24 and 25, the very conclusion uh, here that we're going to see this poisonous seed of self-focus. I'm going to read back over these scriptures and I want to give you an analogy to help us kind of put this into context. And so in verses 24 and 25, we see this. And the people of Israel departed from there at that time, every man to his tribe and family. And they went out from there, every man to his inheritance. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. If you were just to open the Bible and turn to this very end, these last two, these last two verses, and you took these in isolation out of everything else, my guess is most of us would be like, what's the big deal? What's going on here that, that you would bring such a, uh, a dark and somber end to the book here? These verses don't seem that big of a deal. And so what I've, what I've, I've just tried to think about analogy that kind of brings to surface kind of what the weight of what we're talking about and the subtleness of this poisonous seed of self-focus here and to see how toxic they really are. And so what you have on your screen, if any of you guys are farmers, uh, you, when I look at that, I just see a pretty plant, right, with nice little flowers on it. But that's actually poison hemlock, all right? Some of you guys have farms, maybe you have this on your farm. And uh, it's not native to our country. It was introduced as an ornamental in the 1800s. It looks familiar. I don't know what it looks familiar to, but the Wikipedia says it looks familiar to other native species that are perfectly harmless. Um, and the reality is, is that you can find this on vacant lots, fields, roadsides, along creeks. But here's why it's a problem, why poison hemlock's a problem. One is that it can pop up anywhere and spread and quickly become invasive because each plant produces 30,000 seeds, up to 30,000 seeds. And here's the other reason why this is a problem. is because it's toxic, both to the touch and fatal if ingested. And, and here's the interesting thing about it. As this plant matures and grows, it increases in toxicity. So here's the connection I, I want to make for us this morning. This really is an illustration of the invasive toxic infestation that we see growing from the very beginning of the book of Judges to a, to a maturity in the end. And it's the poisonous seed of self-focus. And in its seed form, it comes in what verse 25 says. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. And so when we see that phrase, we got to pause. What does that mean? Now, uh, if you've been in a connect group, you've been hashing this out all semester long. And uh, one of the first initial takes when I read that verse is I think about it as uh, on some levels just in a, in a relativistic society. And, and, and I'm going to give you another challenging side to this that just hit, dawned on me this week through our Connect group. But when I initially think about this, I think of just everyone doing what feels good. Whatever feels good, whatever floats your boat, whatever you want to do, that's what you do. That's, what, that's the principle which you run your life by. And I think there's an angle of that, right? 
In our Connect group this week, uh, Will Russell and his kind of, he was summing up what he thought about Judges in this last line. And he said something that, that shook me because, I mean, he, let me give you, if you're not in a Connect group, if you're not in a place where you can discuss God's word with others, you need to be. Because it's in those moments that you, I've been studying to preach on this passage all week long. And he drops a dime on us in a, in a short little minute. That I'm like, man, I hadn't even thought about that, this entire book of Judges. And here was, his, here was his perspective. He said, I don't think that everything did what was right in his own size is just so everyone does whatever they feel like doing. Because if you look at the Israelites, this is basically what he said to us. If you look at the Israelites, you see in this last chapter, they were reasoning from principles. They didn't just do what felt good. They actually were reasoning through their decisions and came to conclusions that were devastating in the end. And what the perspective, one of the perspectives of what this means is that, is that when we function off principles that are just about us and not in line with who God is and what he values in this world, it takes us to this end as well. So it's not just this relativistic kind of do whatever feels good, but it's also when we function from principles where we're, our, the, where ourself is the reference and not God and what he values. And so living for a life focused on ourself, with our own bent and desires being the point of reference for life, with principles not in line with what God values, that in seed form, it's not native to this world. It's not how God created this world to be. It's an invasive species. And here's the deal. In its seed form, it looks pretty, just like hemlock does. It appears harmless. And I think in, in that way, it lulls us to think it's not that big of a deal. But what we've seen in the book of Judges is that this seed spreads rapidly, and it, as it matures, it gets more and more toxic. And so if you take these last two verses and you isolate them from the entire content of the book of Judges, you think this isn't that big of a deal. But here's, here's what this narrator has done in this book. He strategically placed this phrase, everyone does what right in their own eyes, all throughout, sprinkled in different spots throughout the book of Judges. And he lands with it here at the very end. And he's done it purposely. Because what he's done is these last couple stories of the book of Judges are so atrocious and so horrific. And he lands on this last verse because he wants us to, sh wants us to see very clearly that where they landed at these, these atrocities started in this seed form of this innocent little phrase, everyone did what was right in his own eyes. And religiousness and religious acts didn't curb its toxicity. In one way, it only increased it. And that's what we see happening here. And so what I want to do is I want to get an overview of what goes down in this last chapter that shows us the toxicity of the seed, because it's really important that, that the narrator has ended here and has married that statement with the last story that we saw. So chapter 21 really is the solution that Israel comes up to, uh, to face a problem that came out of chapters 19 and 20, which we dealt with last week. So if you weren't here, just let me, and, and I mean, I don't really remember every sermon every week either. So let me just give you a quick little overview of what we talked about in 19 through 20. There was this horrific gang rape of, and a murder of a woman by the men of one tribe, the Benjamites. And so the tribe of ben Benjamite wouldn't, um, wouldn't bring those men to justice. So the other 11 tribes began a civil war against uh, the, the tribe of the Benjamites. And, and here's the thing, it wasn't just a war. Uh, it wasn't just a civil war. They literally went in and slaughtered every woman and child of the Benjamites, of the entire tribe. 
And so what happens is there were 600 of these Benjamite warriors who fled the battle and, uh, and weren't found. And now, after the dust has settled, these 600 men, their families are gone. They have nothing. They have no wives, no children, nothing. And so Israel, the leaders of Israel gather together. In chapter 21, as these leaders gathering together to address this problem that they see, that these 600 men have no wives, the tribe's going to die out, and all the other tribes have sworn that they won't give their children in marriage to anyone from the Benjamites. No duh. If you read the previous chapters, you'd understand why they came to that conclusion. And so this is the problem they see that they're facing. And so let's, let's read of kind of how they begin to process this problem. And we'll see it in verses 2 through 4 of chapter 21. It'll be on the screen for you. And the people came to Bethel and sat there till evening before God. And they lifted up their voices and wept bitterly. And they said, O Lord, the God of Israel, why has this happened in Israel? That today there should be one tribe lacking in Israel. And the next day the people rose early and built there an altar and offered burnt offerings and peace offerings. So again, if you take these two verses and you isolate them from the whole context of chapter 21, it seems like things are turning around, right? They weep bitterly. They build an altar. They make offering. All these religious acts could be good things and show that they're broken and they want to repent. But here's the deal. All that you see here is garbage. This poisonous seed of self-focus and self-reference is not eradicated by these religious acts. And I want you to notice something here. Notice what they say to God. Why has this happened? I'm trying to think of all the things that you might say to God after you've just wiped out an entire tribe, including all the women and children, after a horrendous gang rape, what might you say to God? And this is what they say. God, why has this happened? And I want you to notice there the way that comes across. And I, th- I think the narrator is wanting us to see this as well. It's in essence they're blaming God. <laughs> I mean, it's clear why this has happened. If you read through the book of Judges, you're not shocked necessarily. You're shocked at these atrocities. You're not shocked necessarily that they came to this conclusion. They've only acted in self-interest and wrong principles this entire time. They've protected and advanced their own efforts regardless of who had to be put down. And I think what we see happening here in these couple verses is that when self, this poisonous seed of kind of self-interest and self-focus infects religion, Religion then is used to justify whatever they want to do. And in particularly, I think one of the things that happens is that we begin to blame everyone else, even God, for things that go wrong. We can't see that we were somehow part of the problem. That's what we see happening here. And the proof ultimately that this religiousness is all garbage is seen in the solution they come up with. And you saw a little hint of it in our scripture reading this morning. But so these Israelites in their religiousness are caught up in several oaths they've made. And this is not the first time they feel hemmed in by their oaths. If you remember, as we gone through this in chapter 11, we dealt with an oath that Jephthah made. But they concoct and execute this plan. And here's what this plan involved on how to figure out how to get wives for these 600 men. It involved wiping out a city of their own people except for 400 virgins. And so those 400 virgins are kidnapped after their families have been murdered. And they're going to give them to 400 of the warriors. And then he's like, well, we're 200 short. What do we do now? And so the other side of their plan that they concoct is they're going to go and they're going to find this festival, this religious festival where these daughters and girls are coming out to celebrate. And they tell the Benjamites, go hide in the woods and to go kidnap 200 more. 
young virgins. And so they have essentially said, hey, we're going to wipe out and then kidnap 600 virgins for you to go marry off and start your tribe again. So I want, let's just pause there. Let's think about verses two through four and think about their actions. So after they've got done meeting with God, the plan they concoct that supposedly is filled with godly wisdom and the way they're going to execute justice in Israel is that they're going to kidnap 600 girls and forcibly rape them over and over and over again through forced marriages. That's what they come up with. This is the toxic, poisonous seed of self-reference grown to maturity and infected all of Israel. You see the conclusion where they walk away like life is normal. And if you isolate those last two verses from the all of the previous in chapter 21, you think it's innocent. But what the narrator is wanting us to see, you are, we read to the end of chapter 21, and we're rightly disgusted by the actions of Israel. And we don't know how to process it. And what the narrator wants us to come to the conclusion is, you don't know how to process it? Let me show you how. This all began with this toxic seed. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. That's the conclusion the narrator wants us to come to. He wants us to see that they came out of that very seed. That this seed of self-interest, this seed of self-reference, when planted, when watered, grows to a bitter and poisonous plant with ever-increasing toxicity. This seed seems small and not that big of a deal, but quickly grew into a force to be reckoned with. Israel wasn't just doing whatever felt good. They, they functioned from principles that were radically not in line with who God was, yet it all had the veneer of religion on it. But that's not the only conclusion that the narrator wants us to come to. And he inserts this other phrase in here uh, to help us bridge the gap because it's not all dark in one sense. And he inserts another phrase here that's used actually four times in this book as well. And it's the idea of a king. And it points us to this need that we are desperate for a king to come rescue us from this poisonous seed of self. And we pick that up here in verse 25. And we'll see it back on the screen. And I'm going to isolate just this one phrase. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Again, this, this phrase was used four times in the book. And so you've got to ask the question when you read this and you see what the narrator is bringing us to, you've got to ask the question, why does the narrator say this about a king? And the reality is they needed a king, but why? And there was two perspectives. And this is where it's helpful to understand the book is one grand storyline. Uh, the Bible is one grand storyline. And in one level, we've got to read this book as an Israelite would in that time and that day. But then we also read this book as a follower of Jesus, this side of the cross. And there is levels to which we understand what he means there in Judges when he says this. On one level, he's speaking politically. That this was true for Israel on a national and political scale. A good king would have unified the tribes when they were disunified. A good king would have been able to rule them with justice. Would have been able to protect those who were marginalized, which is not happening over these last few chapters of Judges. It would have protected them from their enemies. And here's the reality. Well, one of the things that the book of Judges is doing is setting you up for the good king that will come, which is King David. And so when the Bible thinks about a good king in the Old Testament, there were many of them, well, not a lot of them, there were a few of them, but King David was kind of the, the pinnacle of those. 
But here's the deal. That's not the full scope of what Judges is pushing us to. The next few books of the, uh, of the Bible will, un, will walk through different kings. And most of them were bad. Some of them were good. And when there were good kings, there was justice. When there were bad kings, there weren't. But the big picture is this, is the political king would not be Israel's ultimate answer. It wouldn't be. Because whatever the king could do on the surface level with justice and protect things like what we see in chapter 21 not from happening, the king couldn't change the heart of the people. And the reality is, every king that was born in Israel was infected with this same poisonous, toxic seed of self as well. And even the best of kings fell, and you could see it in their life. And so again, we read Judges, this side of the cross, this side of Advent, right? And so there is a greater king of which King David was a prototype of, and this king would come to rescue holistically. And so this line in Judges doesn't just point to the need for Israel to have a political king in that time and in that place. It points us to a need for a holistic king who will come and rescue the world from this poisonous seed of self. And we begin to see this, and this is going to come through the person of Jesus in Isaiah 9, uh, chapter 9, verse 6 and 7. This is a classic kind of Christmas Advent verse in the Old Testament, and we'll see it on the screen here, but I want to read it to us. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end, on the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness." From this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. And so Isaiah is speaking of a promised king who would come, and he would turn everything upside down that we see happening in the book of Judges. And so if you think of Judges, and you think of this, uh, this prophecy here, his, just think about this. His throne would rule and ensure peace, justice, and righteousness, not just for the powerful, but for the marginalized as well. Just think of the impact that would have in chapter 21. So there's, there's truth there to that. But what we need to do is we need to think about this verse in the context of Jesus' ministry when he showed up. Because what Jesus would do when he would show up for the first time, he began to show us what his rule and reign forever would look like. So in his ministry, we get tastes of what it will be like for the King Jesus to come and rule once again. And we begin to see that he would make all wrong things right. So what did we see? What are the observations we make when Jesus would come to this earth? He didn't buy into the cultural idols of the day, political power and advancement. He called out and rebuked religious hypocrisy. He related to women as true and full image bearers with the utmost dignity and respect. He welcomed children with joy and delight. He brought sight to the physically and spiritually blind. He brought health to the physically and spiritually sick. He valued and loved the poor and marginalized. And those were just tastes of what he would do when he would come again. That's the picture we get here. And here's the reality. This king would also be glorious enough to rescue the world from a life of doing what's right in our own eyes, from doing life centered on ourselves. This king Jesus, what he did in that day and what he'll do when he returns will capture the world with a love that will pry them out of this self-vision of the world to do what's right in our own eyes. 
When we get trapped in self-interest, we're getting trapped in this thought that uh, to do what's right in our own eyes is the best and the greatest thing we can imagine around us. And it is a trap. And this is the very trap that Adam and Eve fell into. And this is what Colossians 1.13 says is the domain of darkness. And when we're stuck in it, it's all that we can see is right in the world. It, let's look at Colossians 1.13. This is what the Jesus came to do. For he has rescued us from the domain of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the son he loves. Paul Tripp, in his book, Quest for More, this is how he describes what's happening in this passage here. And we'll see this quote on the screen. He says this, He came to pry us from the constricted confines of our diminutive little kingdoms and by his grace to welcome us to the expansive glories of a better kingdom. And what, what he's getting at there is that when you and I are stuck in thinking that uh, it is good and right to do what's right in our own eyes, whether that be uh, do whatever feels good way of doing it or it's just functioning pr from principles that seem right to us but aren't in line with what God's values He's saying that's getting stuck in this little kingdom of self. God longs to rescue us from that and bring us into a much more expansive and glorious kingdom. And what Jesus came to do was to pry us out of the constricted nature of that reality, to pry us out of Judges 21 and to bring us into something better. And he says, in the person and work of Jesus Christ, God has made ample provision for you and me, as we live in kingdoms in conflict. And what he's describing there, writing to Christians, is that we live in kingdoms in conflict. You and I, if you're a follower of Jesus, have been rescued from the domain of darkness, but we are in constant battle to want to come back and live in this small little kingdom, to think if I do what's right in my own eyes, that's where my best interest lies. We're in these kingdoms of conflict here. And his grace blows a hole in your self-contained little kingdom. And in his redemptive love, he reaches in and pulls you out again and again and again. And so these last lines of the book of Judges summarize where God's people found themselves. Yet they also help to interpret the problem we see in our world. That this poisonous, toxic seed of self-focus has infected all of the world in every one of our hearts this morning but we are not without hope. The candle of hope is a, is a small picture of the reality that God would send a king to rescue us and bring healing. So where do we go from here this morning, Grace Church? We've got two applications for you. And I, I think it's fitting that you and I, and maybe this, maybe this first one is just more reflective of how I'm coming in, but I think maybe some of you can identify with it. So I think the first thing we've got to do is we've got to ask ourselves and ask God to help us see the bitter and poisonous fruit of living with yourself or living for yourself. And I'll give this confession. Uh, as I was been working through Judges and this last week in Judges, just in my personal study and sermon preparation, that last phrase, everyone did what was right in their own eyes. There is a part of me that just looks at that phrase and, it, and I, I just divorce it from everything I just read in Judges 21. And I just think, that seems pretty innocent. It just doesn't seem to be that bad. But that's just a confession that I have, that I have failed to recognize the full toxicity of what the Scriptures are saying here in that phrase. And I think to myself, and this is just a, a confession here, that maybe a little bit of that is just okay, that we can manage it in our life. And what would a little bit of that look like? 
Maybe we think, uh, I'm just subconscious, when we walk in the room, we're the most important person in the room. Our needs are the most important. We can maybe subconsciously think, if it makes me feel good, it's okay. Or we function with principles central to our life. Uh, maybe those principles around achievement or finding our security in our finances or uh, trying to secure the approval of the group we're a part of that seem innocent and just seem not that big of a deal to, to build our lives around those principles. But they're not in line with who God is. But those things are a poisonous seed, and that's what Judges wants us to convince us of. And so are we convinced that self-focus is a bitter and poisonous seed that can't be managed? So I've been thinking about that even more. Uh, part of the end of this judge's study has helped me and confront me to the reality of the toxicity of that seed. Is, um, and I, I think it may seem that we can manage these thoughts, but Israel is given here not as an exception to the rule, but as a case study for us to show us the way these things work. And if you've read through the, the material we were working through, Lydia Brownback said that at the end of her study guide that you can, you can maybe sense the spiritual temperature of a culture by how they treat women and children. And she came to that conclusion based off what we see in Judges 17 through 21. And... Uh, then it, I began to do some research, and what I came to the conclusion of is that we, we look at these atrocities and judges, and we're appalled by them, but the reality is we're not that far off from that in our own culture. Did you know that every 68 seconds in our country, someone is sexually assaulted? Every 68 seconds. And then every nine minutes... The person that's sexually assaulted is a minor. And did you know that one in four women in our country will either be raped or subjected to an attempted rape? Judges challenges to ask the question, what principles that seem innocent to us are we coddling and managing about how we see people that would lead us in one area to look just like judges? On the veneer, life is good in America. But what those stats show is there are a lot of victims and a lot of pain and a lot of suffering that we just don't see. But judges wants us to convince us that we can't manage this whole everyone does what's right in their own eyes. It's a toxic, toxic, and invasive species. Just an illustration of this idea, if we can't manage it. Let's say you've got a, a child that uh, they're on their Christmas lift is, list is they want a lion cub, you know, a baby lion. And the idea of having a baby lion in your house, it actually probably seems kind of cute. You've seen them in nature videos, and they seem playful and cute, and the reality is, for a little while, that baby lion is cute, and it is fun. But here's the reality. That baby lion's going to grow, grow into a full, mature lion. And there's no way to manage a full, mature lion in your house. There will be disaster. And that's the picture. It, at first glance, this seed looks innocent and not that big of a deal. 
I can manage in this area of my life to do what feels good or to work off principles that aren't in line with who God is. And I can manage it there. But what Judges wants us to see is you can't manage it. It is spreading with, with invasive toxicity and it will infect everything and it will bring disaster to everything it touches. And you will not be the exception to that rule. And so are we convinced of that? Are we walking in this morning convinced that this seed is toxic? But the second application, you'll see it on the screen here, is to relish in a fresh way this advent and the incarnation of our rescuing king. Although I've struggled with this thought, is this really that innocent and really that bad? The other thing that has hit me all week long is that in many ways, this go, this go through judges has been dark and difficult to process and difficult to discuss and not really fun to lead. Um, but in a whole other way, it's greatly prepared us for the coming of our king. It has left us with a desperation and a thankfulness, thankfulness that our king has come and a desperation that he would return once again. And so as we turn into the, uh, these festivities at Christmas time, I, I do hope that for all of our families, it is, it's a joyous season. There's going to be great food, time with your family, fun presents, that if you've got kids, your kids are happy. But there is a greater hope that we gather to celebrate this season, that our King Jesus knows how the poisonous seed of self has infected the world. And he knows that you and I have been gripped with this poisonous seed. And he came to rid this land of this toxic species through his death and resurrection. And he bends towards you and I this morning with compassion because he wants us to rid it in our lives as well. And so Grace Church, this Advent, relish and be refreshed that the poisonous seed of self has left the world broken. Yet you and I have a king who has come to rescue us and bring healing. Let's pray. Father, I'm thankful in many ways that you would put a book like this in the Bible because it confronts us. In many ways, we can look at our lives in America and our comfortable homes and the culture we live in, and we can think, oh, this is innocent, and we just do what we want, and it feels good, and everybody's happy and right. And Judges is warning us, you can't control that toxic seed. And if we look under the surface, the stats in our own country reveal that we can't. And if we look at our own lives, we sing the destruction of this own toxic seed. And so, Father, I, I do pray that you'd convince us. If there are areas in our life that we're trying to manage and, and control and, and tolerate this seed, that you would show us that it's, it's worthless. And you would convince us there's a king that has come to pry us out of the constricted confines of our selfish little worlds to bring us into the expansive glories of the son he loves. Would you convince us of that? And so there's those this morning that have never fathomed life outside of those little confines. This advent, would you rescue them? Would you bring them into a relationship with you? And as we even move now towards the table, towards communion, would you let this be, uh, engage our senses in such a way to give us a taste of the hope of this king. It's in your name we pray. Amen.